Have you ever um, like kind of felt like an outsider on a conversation? Perhaps you're at like a family gathering or a party and people are talking and you kind of like go up to, to engage in the conversation and then what they're talking about is just like either completely over your head. It's like that Homer Simpson meme where you're just going to, okay, I'm just going to slide back here into the hedges a little bit. Like you ever been there? Like, like been someone who you're, you're, you're around a couple of people who have some inside jokes and you just don't get it. And you're like, ah, oh, that's so funny. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I assume that's a thing. A couple years ago, I uh, had the, the opportunity to help uh, one of my good friends out during harvest time. Now, I did not grow up in the Midwest, don't really know what a tractor is. I showed up and they was just like, all right, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to hop in the Argarag and you're going to drive up next to the combine, get close to the bean head. And then as he switches it out, you're going to go all the way back. And you're going to put it into the semi and just continue in that circle. And so I was like, uh-huh. And he's like, okay, so if you need, you need to turn on the RPO, make sure you hit the throttle, not too fast. But if you need to, go ahead, you can adjust your speed here with this mechanism, but don't do it too quickly or else all the grain's gonna dump out because we don't want that to happen. And so I'm just like, okay, cool. So I get in the small tractor and I go next to the big thing and then he puts all the, the beans or the grain and then I go over to the other, the big truck and I dump it in and do a circle. And he's like, yeah. I said, why did you just say that this, the first time? He's like, well, because that's not what it's called. Today, as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews, might feel a little bit like that. Like, what is this stuff that the author of Hebrews is talking about? What is this sacrificial system? What is this temple? What is this tent that is being described? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. If you have the app, you can follow along with us and take notes. But what we're going to dive into today might feel a little bit like that awkward third person in a, a, a conversation in which the two other parties are talking to each other about something that doesn't really resonate. But the truth of the matter is, is when we are in those types of conversations, we always have a couple options. Number one, we can just smile and nod and be like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. Uh-huh, how about that weather? Or we can leave. Or the other option we have is to try to learn and pick up on what is being shared. Hebrews uh, is, is this book written to this group of Jewish Christians, people who were formerly Jewish in their ethnic upbringing, through tradition, through ritual, through the Old Testament way of life, who expressed their faith in Jesus, the Yeshua, the Messiah, and has now found faith. But they are experiencing this tension to drift back into their old ways in life. Let me go back to my old ways of thinking, my old ways of doing, my old ways of viewing God. And the author of Hebrews saying, no, no, we have a new way. We have a fulfilled way, a better way in the name of Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews chapter 8, it starts off here for us this morning. Starting in chapter 8. It says, now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was necessary for this one to also have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow, your text might say a sketch, of what is in heaven. This is why Moses, who warned when he was about to build the uh, was warned when he was about to build their tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. That's Mount Sinai. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received uh, is superior to theirs 
as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. Then we skip to verse 13. It says, by calling this covenant new, he, being Jesus, has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. What the author of Hebrews is starting to talk about here is the old sacrificial system. The tabernacle, the tent, the law, that when there was a sin that you had, you had to go to a place to offer atonement. That when there was a sin that you were made aware of, you had to essentially pay the price for that debt against God. And the way it was done is you would go to this place, this tent that was laid out. We'll show you a picture of it here in a minute. And you would go and you would bring a sacrifice that was, would match the payment of your debt, so to speak. And then a priest would be the mediator for you on your behalf. But the thing is, is because blood, and you might get this, always represented both life and death. Now, blood represents both life and death, does it not? Like, think about it. Think about when you hear these terms and these phrases, oh, the blood is coursing through our veins, that we cannot live, we cannot survive unless we have blood inside of us. That you and I, sometimes we know people who need a blood transfusion. It is the only thing they need in order to maintain their life. And in a similar way, it's the exact opposite. That as soon as something has a loss of its blood, as soon as its blood has been poured out, it leads to death. The book of Leviticus in chapter 17 tells us that there is life in the blood. And the reason that the sacrificial system was put in place was because of sin. Now the thing is, is God has always been making a way for each and every one of us to be made right with him. Put it this way, that faith is in a sacrifice has always made people right with God. In the Old Testament, prior to Jesus, it was still a similar thing. It was faith in a sacrifice. Except this sacrifice was not a man. This sacrifice was not Jesus' life, death, resurrection. This sacrifice was the blood of a goat, a bull, for the poor people who could not afford it. They were given a reason through grace to offer a sacrifice of a dove or a pigeon. You know, but the thing is, it was merely a sketch or a shadow of what is to come. But it's like, you know, like it... Anybody in here ever getting a, a parking ticket? Go ahead, show of hands, it's okay. We, we love you still, okay, right? The reason you get a parking ticket is why? It's because you, you did something wrong, you broke the rules. And so it reminds you, what's the kind of the thing? Is, is you parked or your license plate is out of date or whatever it is, you broke the rule. There is a rule, there is a code, and if it's broken, there is a fine. And then in order to be made right, to not be tracked down by the cops or whatever happens, then you have to have a price that matches that payment. You pay the fine in order to make it right. And that's kind of what the sacrificial system was, is, is our sin, the sin before a holy and just God, a sacrifice was required in order to be made right with him. Now, this idea of blood and sacrifice that was littered throughout Scripture, in Genesis chapter 4, we see the first instance in which the blood of an animal is, is held to high esteem. There's these two brothers, Cain and Abel, and they are both compelled to make an offering before God. And one of them brings the offering because he raised up livestock. This is Abel. And then Cain was, was a, essentially kind of like a farmer and raised up grain. And they both took a, a portion of their offering to God. And, and God looked upon the one Abel sacrificed because of the blood of an animal, but he rejected that of Cain's. 
We also see other instances in the Old Testament. Think about how the nation of Israel, they were rescued out of the bondage, the oppression of slavery because the blood of a pure and spotless lamb was painted along the doorposts. We see in the New Testament that Jesus, on his last night of his disciples, something that we remember each and every week, he held up the cup, he held up the wine, he said, this is my blood shed for you. And of course, we know the greatest shedding of blood of all time, that Jesus took his final breath on the cross. And so the interesting thing is the old way is no longer needed. Let me show you kind of how the old way would work. This is a picture up here on one of the screens of the tabernacle, the old temple. So this is what would happen. Outside of that big rectangle is just think of that as like life. That's where you live. That's where you, you, you're aware of your sin. That's where you're like, oh, I made an oopsie. I got to go be right with God. And so you would enter there at the bottom through the gate. One could say it was just purely God's graciousness that allows you to even step closer to him to be made right. And you would bring your sacrifice to the altar in which a priest would be waiting for you. Day after day, week after week, these priests would sacrifice animals to make atonement for the sins of the people. I can't help but think they did this day in and day out that their hands began to look a little bit different, had a tint of red, just because of the pure sacrifice, the consistency that they did. Then the priest would then, after making you right with God, would go on your behalf to the holy place, where he would offer worship and praise. He would light incense to, to show the aroma of God's goodness. But one time a year, in kind of that middle top section, is what is called the most holy place, the holy of holies. And one time a year, the high priest would be made right with God and then take two sacrifices, take two lambs into the holy of holies. Because in the Holy of Holies was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was God's presence. It was this big, uh, this big, almost like this giant stone box, and it was had these gold cherubim, and on the top was what was called the mercy seat. And once a year, only once a year, could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on behalf of the entire people of God. Because that is where the presence of God was, and that is what God required. You see, the temple always represented two things. It didn't just represent sacrifice, it also represented worship. But before we can worship God, we first have to have and understand sacrifice. That worship requires sacrifice. That before one can do right by God in worship, one has to be right with God through the faith of a sacrifice. The thing is, is that the blood of the animal could only take you as far as it could. In some ways, Hebrews has been describing this as the old way. This is the, the former way of doing it. It was a sketch. It was a shadow. It's kind of like, um, like you know, like you, you, let's just say you, you racked up a bunch of charges on your credit card. Okay, we've all been there. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're, you're fiscally smarter than I am. But I remember when my wife and I first got married, we had a credit card and we were just kind of, you know, making the payments to get by. And, and every month you get those two options, right? Do you want to pay it in full or do you want to just make the minimum payment? And you can opt for the minimum payment so that, you know, the company isn't calling you or whatever. It kind of appeases it for a time being. But there will ultimately come a time when the full weight of that debt you have to be responsible for. That's kind of like the Old Testament system. The old blood, the old sacrifice was this can get you by for right now. But there will come a time in which the full weight of your debt must be paid. 
Hebrews then continues in chapter nine, verse 11, verses nine through 10 of chapter nine talks about the temple and the tabernacle. We're gonna pick up in verse 11. It says this, it says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats or by calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. There's two things that kind of this text is kind of referencing. It's kind of referencing Jesus' sacrifice, but it's also helping that we keep in mind our sinfulness. See, there's two things that each and every one of us have in common. It's not that we live in Illinois. Two things we have in common is that we are all equally sinful. Whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, you and I are in the same boat. And that boat is sinking. But the other thing that is equally true about each and every one of us is how loved we are by God. That God genuinely and passionately and intentionally loves each and every one of us the same. And that sketch of a system was to show that God is just as holy as he is just. And what it means is that you and I alike, we are all equally needing to be saved. You and I alike are all equally needed by the love of Jesus Christ, by God's love through faith to be restored and made into a new creation to do good work. We put it this way, is that the blood of a sacrifice reminds us of both God's holiness and our sinfulness. That the, 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 the payment of our sinfulness has to match, that the payment of our death needs to be matched with life. And if we want life, then there must be death that has to follow. And the truth is, is that God is better than we think he is. There is no word, there is no action, there is no deed, there is no understanding that we could do in this life to adequately express and worship and portray the majesty, the goodness, the holiness of God. And at the same time, too, we are all probably worse off than we realize. One of the things that I think we naturally do as humans is we try to hide our brokenness. We try to hide our sin. We try to build ourselves up. Like, you ever heard that phrase, well, well, all sin is equal? That little cliche, all sin is equal, right? And that's just not true. It's a good cliche, but the thing is, is in one instance, all sin is equal in the sense that it separates you from an all-powerful, holy God. But not all sin is equal. We know this. Right? Murder is not the same as a white lie. Embezzling is not the same as a fallenness of pride. And we know this to be true because in the book of Leviticus, it gives us all of these rules, all these regulations. If you've sinned in this way, you pay this price. If you, if you sinned in this way, you offer this sacrifice. But the thing is, all sin is equal in that it sets us on a path to be separate from God, that we live in our death. And in that sinfulness, we need to realize one and one thing only, that we can be saved and saved alone by an all-loving, all-powerful God. 
You see, God doesn't look down at some of us and be like, oh man, Eric, that boy's got potential. I'll tell you what, I don't know about what everyone else is doing, but man, that boy has potential. He's looking at the Holy Spirit, nudging the Holy Spirit. I'm just glad Eric's on our team. That boy's, you know, yeah, he made some decisions growing up that weren't, but he's, he is crushing it now. What would we do without Eric on our team? We just don't even really know. Like, that's just not happening. We lose sight of the state of our sinfulness, but the, the, the courage that it takes. I need you to understand this, and I need you to lean in with me here for just a moment. It takes courage for each and every one of us to admit that we all need to be saved as much as the person next door. It takes courage, it takes humility, it takes repentance and obedience for us all to realize that that neighbor, that coworker, that boss, that old friend, that person we knew, that article we read about him or her, we all have to be saved and we are all saved in the same way. God's loving sacrifice through Jesus Christ. And what that should do for each and every one of us, it should not create a a spirit of haughtiness. It should not create in us a spirit in which we look down on others. It should not be uh, something that that we, we promote gossip or slander. It should not be something in which we look to find out all the bad details and we want to point out their faults but never are. What it should do is say, hey, I have found freedom. I have found life. I have seen the blood that has been on my hands and I have been rescued and redeemed from it. Now I want you to experience that life too. That's what it should do for us. That when we think about the weight of our sin, it should not be a calling card to point it out in each and every person that we can. Rather, that when we read scripture and we worship God and commune with the spirit, what it should do is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, by the love and the grace of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the blood has to be on someone's hands. It's always been this way. There has to be blood on someone's hands. Now, here's the beauty. Get this. The Old Testament system was this outside-in. You're aware of your sin. You go through the gate. You offer the sacrifice, and you slowly work your way towards the presence of God. But then Jesus, right? We know at his crucifixion, when he took his last breath, one of the things that happened is this is the temple veil was torn. That means the presence of God is open. And what Jesus has done is he says, if you exchange your death with mine, if you exchange your blood with mine, if you want to receive life through my grace, then guess what? It goes from the inside out. You don't have to work your way towards God. You don't feel like you have to earn your way towards God. You don't feel like you have to somehow manage your good works and your bad works to to prove yourself to God. Rather, the presence of God has been made known. The temple has been, been torn. The Holy of Holies is appropriate and you can stand there and everything else about life gets pushed out from there. What used to be going from the outside in now becomes from the inside out because of Jesus' blood in those of us. By grace, through faith. Our death for his life, radical life change, only happens when we are obedient in the heart. When the power of Jesus' blood transforms us and takes a hold of us in a way that every sin that so easily entangles, we're able to say, not anymore. That is not blood that is on my hands. That is not my responsibility to bear because Jesus lives 
in me. Author of Hebrews continues, chapter 9, verse 14, picking up here. It says, how much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, he's talking about the last will and testament, like an inheritance. It is necessary to prove death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who has made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, which interesting fact there, the hyssop is the same branch that they use to give Jesus wine while he was sitting on the cross. Fun fact, okay, moving on and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremony. Verse 22, this is where it gets good. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I don't know about you. When I think about worshiping Jesus, the most powerful thing is what it cost him. It cost him his life. Philippians chapter 2 tells this man who is God, comes down, humbles himself, lives a perfect life, does not deserve to die the most painful and excruciating death so that we may live. It cost Jesus everything. And he did it not to look at you begrudgingly. He did it not to judge you. He did it to forgive you. He did it to welcome you and I into his family, into his presence. Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus doesn't just kind of, you know, hey, I know you did that thing. Don't worry about it. Hey, hey, remember that time a couple years ago, you kind of said those things, you treated those people that way. Hey, those are kind of small. It's not nothing compared to what those people, just forget about those. Jesus doesn't wink at sin. Jesus doesn't look over Things that condemn us and bring death. Instead, he says, I know the weight. I know the cost. So much so that I am going to shed my own blood so that you don't have to understand that. He does not ignore it. He does not pretend like it doesn't exist. But his love triumphs all. I'll put it this way. That Jesus, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he is no friend of sin. You put it this way, that Jesus is a friend of sinners, you and I alike. Even before we enter that holy of holies, even before we enter the presence of God, God is fighting for you. He is fighting with you. He is trying to corral you into his family. He's trying to say, no, 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 my way, my life, my eternal destiny is far greater than anything you could ever imagine. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he is no friend of sin. 
See, see, one of those he restores and he redeems and he forgives and he chases after. And he continues to offer love and grace and mercy. The other he seeks to kill, he seeks to destroy, he seeks to abolish. Jesus is friend of sinners, but he is no friend of sin. And the greatest proof of that is the proof of his blood on the cross. Jesus sees, Jesus knows, Jesus feels the cost of our sin. He bled and died, but he did it willingly because he is our friend. I love in verse 14 where it says, how much more? Over in chapter 8, it said, the temple, the sacrificial system served as like a sketch or a shadow. You know those HGTV shows where like they're renovating like houses and bathrooms and backyards? Like I guess that's every single show. Okay, so you know HGTV where they're just like renovating the entire world? And they always do that thing, right? They, they walk into the house and it's just like, oh my word, this is terrible. And they start walking through, and we're going to blow this wall out, and we're going to put shiplap on the ceiling and on the outside, and we're going to go, we're going to get rid of the garden, and we're going to put shiplap in the garden, and we're just going to put it everywhere. It's going to be amazing, right? And then they do that thing where they're like, the, the people got to be a little bit overwhelmed. They're kind of like, I don't really get your vision, but I trust you. Your name's Joanna Gaines. You have stuff in Target. My wife goes there, buys frappuccinos, and always brings stuff up, whatever it is, right? You're just kind of like nodding along. And then they kind of say, well, let me show you a mock-up. And they do like the little computer thing. And it's like, and all the walls disappear. And that, or, or one of them does like a little water coloring. Or some of them use pencil. Some of them use crayons. One of them uses finger paint. I don't know, I just made that up, right? And it gives you the idea of what is to come. And then you don't get to be in the house. Then you gotta like go away for like five, six weeks. Seven weeks, two years. I don't know, it takes a while. And then they bring you back in. And every single reaction is the same. <gasps> Whoa! This is my house? That looks, I mean, I saw what the sketches. I saw what the drawings were, were trying to show me. But this is incredible! It's the same thing. The Old Testament system, have faith in a sacrifice. Faith in a sketch. Faith in what is to come. And our response to Jesus Christ on the cross should be, whoa, there it is. Everything we've thought, everything we've seen, everything we've heard. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't look to the sketch. Look to the flesh. Don't look to the drawing. Look to what has now been revealed to you. Don't sit and like, man, someday this is going to be really good. I hope they get it done. Rather, sit and revel and sit in that kitchen and pet that backsplash and hug the shiplap. Because it's there. Because it's been revealed. It's been done for you. Now the Hebrews says it's like a will, though. And you and I know this because wills are a thing for us today. That in order for a will to take effect, someone has to die. And in the Old Testament system, it was the same thing. God's will was plain. He loves you. He cares for you. He desires to have relationship with you. That he has set up a system. He has set up a, a, a covenant is the, is the proper term so that you may be with God. And all it takes is the death of something 
to make that will come into play. Now, the greatest news is that the death that we believe in is not one that happens over and over and over. It's not the uncertainty of, I hope that priest made and did the things in the right order because if not, this might not work. The, 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 our will to be with God has been made permanent and has been made eternal because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. God's will for you and I alike goes into effect as soon as we accept Jesus. But it's only the death of Jesus that can make God's will come alive in our life. There is no man who can make God's will come alive in your life except for Jesus. There is no woman who can make God's will come alive in your life except for Jesus. There is no ritual that can make God's will come alive in your life. There is no song that you can sing, no good work that you can do, no feeling that you can chase after that can make God's will come alive in your life. It is only through the death, through the blood of Jesus Christ. So what does the blood of Christ mean for us? It means two things. Number one, the blood of Jesus is what makes us right with God. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 puts it this way. It says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That only the blood of Jesus takes away our sin. Not a building, not a pastor, not a feeling, not a tradition, not a song, not a good work, not an event, not a retreat, not a checklist. Nothing makes us right with God. Nothing enacts God's will into our life except for Jesus. And we lose sight of that at times. It should be encouraging to us in our faith because Jesus will never leave you. Jesus will never forsake you. But everything else under heaven, it will fail you. It has the potential to leave you. Everything else under heaven has the opportunity to change or to shift. If you feel like God loves you because of who stands on this stage, that has the opportunity to change. If you feel like your relationship with God is dependent on if that bank account is going up and down, that has the opportunity to change. If you feel like your, your ability to follow Jesus is based on, on the songs that are selected every Sunday morning, the missionary partners that are selected, if you feel like your ability to follow Jesus is based on anything under heaven, then unfortunately, it doesn't have the ability to last. When we were launching Urbana, I told that location over and over and over, if you come to this church because of me, then you're here for the wrong reasons. If you come to this church because you, you know, you like that one worship pastor, then you're here for the wrong reasons. But if you come to this church because you want to be a part of a place where people can belong before they're asked to believe or behave, if you want to be a part of a church where we worship Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, if you want to be a part of a church where we take that commission to make Christ-centered disciples seriously, then you're in the right spot. And the beauty of it is, is that the blood of Christ never fades. Have you ever been in one of those seasons or moments where you feel like it has, though? Some of the darkest times in my life 
have been when I just feel like I've made a mess of things. Made decisions or choices perhaps I wasn't proud of. When I begin to reflect and I have this overbearing guilt. When I begin to think about, well, there's this person and this decision and this going on over here. And it's just like, man, I haven't, it's been like a month since I've opened my Bible. It's been like, you know, months since I've had quality time in prayer. And it's been, I don't even remember the last time I even wanted to go to church. And this is a pastor speaking. And in those moments, I start to think maybe God doesn't actually love me anymore. Maybe, 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 maybe Jesus' sacrifice has run its course in my life. Or maybe it's on me. Maybe I need to work a little bit harder. Maybe I need to do a little bit more, give uh, you know, to the bottom line. And I begin to think, but the truth is, is that the blood of Christ never fails. It is as crimson as it was on day one as it is on day one million. The blood of Christ never fades. Hear that again. The blood of Christ never fades. Even when you feel like it's run out, even when you feel distant from God, even when it's just been a week, the blood of Christ never fades. That's why we gather. That's why this church opens its doors to celebrate and worship. Number two, what does the blood of Christ mean for us? That the blood of Jesus leads us to do right by God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 2. He says, for the law, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. For I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our obedience does not make us valuable to God. Our righteousness, our good works does not make us valuable to God. Our repentance reveals how valuable God is to us. We cannot show and prove ourselves valuable to God. Not because you're not worth anything, but because God has already said, you are of immense value. You are of, of, of the most precious gems and stones that I could ever imagine, so much so I have created a sure fire way for you and I to be in relationship forever. That the blood of Christ will not fail, but it also will transform your heart from the inside out. The blood of Christ means we start to live outwardly the person that Jesus has made us internally. So as we move to our time of response this morning, I want to ask you that question. What can you begin doing outwardly to declare who Jesus has made you internally? At some point, you and I will stand before an almighty, holy God. We will stand before his presence. We will stand in front of him and we will have blood on our hands. And what God is not going to ask is he's not going to probably say, how did it get there? Can you explain how much does it compare to them or him or her? He's not gonna say, well, give me your best reasons of, of why you don't think it's that big of a deal. He's going to ask a simple question. 
Whose blood is it? Whose blood is it? Is it yours? Or is it his? Whose blood is it? We have this life to make that choice. Whose blood will be on our hands for eternity? Because there is only one blood that can cover yours. Only one blood. And it is not the blood of an animal, and it is not the blood in anything or anyone under heaven. Only the blood of Jesus. Whose blood is on your hands? See, time and time again, these priests, they would enter into the presence of God with blood-stained hands. Lord, we have faith in a sacrifice. We trust your provision. We have walked forth in the way that you have commanded it. So now we come to worship you because out of your love and out of your graciousness, you have mercifully forgiven us. So the question becomes to us. The question becomes to you. Whose blood is on your hands? Is it yours? Or is it his? Because the blood that is on your hands is probably the blood that you worship in this life. The stark reality. Because what the, what the gospel teaches us is, is the blood that we seek, is the blood that we believe has the faith to redeem us, to store, restore us, to save us. And it's only through the love-filled, gracious, powerful, never-ending, justice-seeking, gracious blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before God boldly and confess, I am yours and you are mine. And here at this church, there is only one person's blood that we worship. There is only one person's blood that we want you to have on your hands. And here's the other part, is that as we can look at our hands and say, Jesus, this is your blood that saves me. This is your blood that restores me. Think about how it changes us. Think about how we go about our life. Think about it, and we don't go around saying, oh, look at your blood. Oh, look at the mistakes you've made. Oh, you know, if you could only clean it up a little bit more. Instead, we say, no, 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 no. I know how you can change that. I know how it can transform your life. I know that, let me show you. Let me love you. Let me encourage you. Let me walk alongside of you so that you can know that the power of the blood of Jesus transforms our life and it transforms our eternity. Whose blood is on your hands. Only you can make that choice. Only you can make that decision. What would it look like is as we walk through life and we rub shoulders with our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that they could see 
a slightly different tint on who we are and the way we go about life. Let's continue to worship this morning as we remember the true blood of Jesus Christ. If you have your communion elements, I invite you to get those out with me this morning. On the last night with his disciples, Jesus held up the bread. He broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Then he held up the cup. This is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. Do this of me. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship Jesus and Jesus alone this morning? Heavenly Father, you are good. You are gracious. That shadow, that sketch has become a reality. I thank you for the blood of Christ that never fades. I thank you for the blood of Christ that is given to each and every one of us. If there's anyone in the room this morning who needs to have the blood of Christ on their hands, Spirit, may you infiltrate their heart and their mind and their soul. May they know that the repentance of their sin means the forgiveness of your sacrifice. Make us into the church, make us into the people, Lord, where we say that this blood is the blood that we worship your blood, your blood alone. Be with us now as we sing songs to remember the greatness of your sacrifice in our life. It's your name that we pray.